Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with Dan Villalon, Principal and Global Co-Head of the Portfolio Solutions Group at AQR, to talk all things emerging markets. U.S. stocks have massively outperformed international and emerging market stocks over the past 15 years. We talked to Dan about why that might be, the relative valuation and attractiveness of EM stocks, the unique opportunity in the value cohort of emerging market equities, how AQR builds long, short emerging market portfolios, and much more. Dan shares his knowledge and thoughts in an informative and enthusiastic way. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with AQR's Dan Villalon. This episode is brought to you by Alpha Architect for Advisors. Whether you're an established firm or just starting out, you know the right systems can be the difference maker to achieving your growth goals. That's why Alpha Architect now offers a suite of turnkey model portfolios that can be customized to fit your practice. Built on Alpha Architect's decades of rigorous academic research, our model portfolios aim to systematize portfolio management so that you can spend less time tinkering with funds and more time finding your next great client. Systemize today to save time tomorrow. That's building with conviction. That's Alpha Architect for advisors. To learn more about Alpha Architect's model portfolios and to schedule a consultation, visit advisors.alphaarchitect.com models. That's advisors, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S dot alphaarchitect.com slash models. Alpha Architect for advisors, built with conviction. Dan, thank you for, so much for joining us this afternoon. Absolutely. Thanks, thanks for having me, guys. I'm, I'm glad to be here. So we're going to talk investing in emerging markets, some of the research that you've put out over the last couple of years at AQR. Um, I think why, you know, EM stocks might make sense, particularly given, um, you know, what's transpired over the last decade with U.S. Uh, outperforming emerging markets and, you know, why investors should be thinking about that relative valuations and a whole bunch of other stuff, you know, relating to um, emerging market investing. So we're really looking forward to this. It's a Friday afternoon in August. Uh, we're happy you're with us. We're surprised you're with us. We're not all on vacation, but, you know, th- this is going to be fun. So thanks. Absolutely. One of the things that we wanted to do just before we get into this is you have a, you know, a unique early experience in your career, and that involved you being involved in the winemaking business. And I don't think you were like standing in a barrel, stepping on grapes, although if you were doing that, that's pretty cool too. But you know, I just wanted to kind of learn and hear a little bit more about maybe that early experience for you, what got you into that, because you're the first person we've ever had on the podcast that's been involved in that business. So we're interested in hearing about that. <laughs> nice. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear. I'm, I'm the first for something. Uh, w- wine was, uh, in a sense, a happy accident. I, I didn't go to college uh, for viticulture or enology or any of that stuff. I, I went to school for for physics. Um, wine was just something I, I kind of became curious about. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, different subjects or avenues in life where you encounter just diehard nuts. You know, and and wine was one of those areas where it's just like, why are some people so crazy about this? And I was just kind of curious, like, well, I, I'd like to find out: is it is it hype, or is there something there? Is, is there some reason that that people become so obsessive about it? And so the morning after I graduated from from college, I drove up to Napa and and 
interviewed at any place that would be willing to speak to a to a physics major. But you know, Justin, you're not far off. The 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 place, the only place that gave me a job, it wasn't to step in barrels. It wasn't even that glad. I was just going to be a barrel roller. So I was just going to kind of rotate barrels, you know, <laughs> once once a year, and that that's what I was hired to do. Uh, I got super lucky. The assistant winemaker happened to uh, uh, retire uh, the day after I signed up, and they're like, "Hey, Dan, you know, we're short in people. Can you handle some more responsibility?" And so that that's how I got into it. My wife has watched basically none of my podcasts, but I think when it comes to wine, she'll be watching some of this one. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll suggest a good pairing to go with this episode. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, but it seems like, like, in, like with winemaking and investing, both would seem to be very detail-oriented and both would, to me, seem like they would take a very long-term view and perspective. So, I mean, are there parallels there that you can draw from, from those, you know, your two experiences in these areas? I, I think you're exactly right. One is the the long horizon nature of stuff. And I don't think this is too much of a stretch in comparing these two, I don't know, professions or, or, or areas. Um, wine can take a really long time uh, before you pop the cork and, and taste. Just like how when it comes to uh, market forecasting or setting expectations, you know, a five to 10 year expectation, well, that takes five to 10 years to pan out. You can't get kind of too distracted by all of the months and quarters uh, along the way. So I think the one one thing is horizon. The second is so little is in your control, right? If, if you're farming grapes, you can't control the weather. You are at its mercy. The best you can do is risk manage around it. Yeah, sure, maybe you have a little bit of a forecast, you know, if it's gonna rain tomorrow or, or in three days, um, but you gotta deal with what, you're, what, what cards you're given. With markets, it's kinda like that too. You know, anyone who <laughs> thinks that they can kind of control things, I mean, they're not gonna last for very long. It's really about how, how, do, you, how do you play the cards you're dealt. Um, with, with markets, it's a very noisy environment and you just, that, that's part of the course. Being a factor nerd myself, I had to like try to tie factor investing somehow to winemaking. And I'm just wondering, like when I see like the $10 bottle at the store and I see like the $100 bottle at the store, like what are the major factors that like differentiates those two? <laughs> this is this is one of the great one of the great mysteries. There was a paper done a, a while ago called the critter effect, uh, just like how there's sort of a value effect in, in factor investing, a momentum effect, et cetera. And they were trying to figure out, can we, can we explain why it is that some bottles, all else equal, you know, the same grape, the same region, the same wine advocate score, why is it that some bottles t seem to sell for more? And the critter effect posited, okay, let's look at what's on the label. If there's a wine bottle with a frog on it or, or, or like a bird, um, do they command a premium compared to ones that don't? And, and this is an old study, but they found, uh, yeah, <laughs> the critter effect is real. I forget what the magnitude is, but you know, this is one of the um, explanatory variables uh, for why some wine costs more than others. It's it's not one of the major ones, of course. There's other stuff, you know, the the winemaker's name, the region, all this other stuff. But it, it is kind of neat that you can find uh, factor effects in 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 wine. This is actually a study. Um, that another uh, a partner at AQR and I are hoping to do, it's, it's sort of like on our long-term uh, to-do list, is to figure out, uh, does the 
this is Jack getting back to kind of uh, finance factors. Does the value effect and the momentum effect hold up in wine prices as well? You know, so momentum, you know, maybe bottles that are kind of selling for more versus their peers over the past 12 months, you know, do they tend to continue increasing in price uh, value? You could take kind of the price of a bottle of wine relative to whatever a critic assigns it. You know, maybe it gets a score of a 95 or a score of an 85. That would be kind of your fundamental anchor. And figure out, yeah, you know, the ones that are kind of lower relative to the critic rankings, uh, do they tend to outperform over the next whatever, uh, how many months or, or year period? So um, I, I feel like this paper is going to have an awesome title. Somehow liquidity is going to be in it, um, but it, it's something I'd love to love to take a crack at. Yeah, you know, that would be my ideal world, basically. If factors are applied to everything, um, yeah, for, for me, like being a nerdy guy like myself, that would be perfect. I mean, I think, you know, markets are so picked over in, in terms of factors and stuff. It's, it's kind of neat when you can take an idea that exists in one domain and test it where it has never been tested before. I, this is something that AQR gets probably too excited about. You know, if we, we find some factor, say, uh, say time series momentum, you know, like trend following, and we say, okay, hey, we just uncovered this great data set. We've never tested it here. Does it hold up? And, and I Ah, I really want to believe that it's going to hold up in, uh, in, in wine if we get to do this study. We're going to get into emerging markets, but just one more before we start with that. Um, this was kind of a fan situation for me having you on because Justin mentioned, he's like, Dan Villalon's coming on from AQR. I'm like, do you know who that is? And he's like, oh, no, who is that? And I'm like, the Curious Investor. I'm like, that's one of the best investing podcasts of all time. Like, you guys did such an amazing job with that. Um, and I was just wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about, like, what you learned from that experience. Yeah, well, th th thank you for thank you for uh, listening to it. Um, I, I boy, you know the the first thing I learned was I mean, this is uh, this is going to sound like I'm kissing your guys' butts here, but doing a podcast is really hard. It, it, it is it is not as easy as just turning on a mic and and talking. And so it takes a village. Having a co-host is super helpful, and that was kind of thing one. The the second thing I learned is it's really hard to translate information that is normally written in a 50-page paper or, or shown in charts uh, or tables. It's really hard to verbalize that stuff. I think it's critically important that it happen. I, I think podcasts serve an invaluable role in the finance community, but it's tough. You know, I, I think so often, um, especially when it comes to academic uh, kind of quantitative financial concepts, the natural ecosystem or environment for sharing that information is the written word. Uh, so being able to translate it to audio, it's, it's difficult, but, but I think people who are doing it are, are doing a service for the community. And just to your point on it being hard, like what we do is hard, but what we do is, you know, we're going to take this interview, we're pretty much going to lightly edit it and we're going to put it up. What you guys did is way harder. And when you're narrating and then cutting back and forth to clips of people talking and stuff, that, that's a much, much. We've done that for a few episodes, and I know it's way, way harder to do that than it is to do this. We, we were gluttons for punishment. <laughs> um, yeah, so I want to shift to international uh, investing, and then we're going to get into emerging markets. But I, I want to talk about international investing in general at first, because you've sort of got different, you know, U.S. stocks have done so much better than international stocks for such a long time that you've got a lot of people now <laughs> saying, you know, you don't need international diversification. I know uh, Jack Bogle was a big proponent of this, you know, whether it's, You've got, you know, you've got everything you need in the U.S. You've got multinational companies or U.S. companies just do better. Or there's some reason for U.S. companies to trade at a premium. 
international diversification has kind of gotten a bad rap. And I'm, I'm just wondering in your research what you found in terms of the value of international diversification. Yeah, I'm with you. Not only has international diversification gotten a bad rap, um, but people have acted on that bad rap. When we speak with investors and if they can kind of share with us their asset allocation or their tactical decisions, you know, relative to that asset allocation, <laughs> very often we find a U.S. overweight, uh, often funded by emerging, but sometimes also funded from uh developed international kind of ex-US. And I get it. It's like you said, US has trounced the rest of the world, generally speaking, over the past decade. It's really hard to stick with something or to go into something when the past decade has shown you that it was a terrible idea. You know, this is sort of like driving with the rear view mirror. It's an unavoidable aspect of investing, particularly if you're in an organization where you have a board and you have other folks kind of overseeing a process. It's really hard to get them to look ahead. So this was one of the reasons that um, I, uh, Cliff Asnes and Antti Ilman, and we, we wrote a paper it was published in the journal Portfolio Management a couple months ago. Uh, by the way, any paper I reference here is freely available on, on the AQR website. So, you know, don't, don't worry. It's, it's, you can check out any of these charts. Um, but it was really to kind of re-underwrite the case for international diversification. I, I think theoretically, I, we all agree diversification is a good idea. And so we wanted to think, okay, well, what happened? <laughs> and do we think it's going to be a bad idea going forward. And so we kind of broke it down into some of the more common arguments we hear against diversification and, and try to just tackle them one by one. Yeah, by the way, the paper is called International Diversification Still Not Crazy After All These Years, which AQR is better than anybody else at titling papers. Um, <laughs> I, I still think size matters if you control your junk is the best title for a research paper of all time. So I don't know who leads up titling over there, but they're doing an outstanding job. You know, I'm glad you raised that because very often, Cliff is given credit for the funny titles and quite, I mean, to his credit, he very often does come up with the funny titles, uh, but not always. And whenever someone else comes up with the title, Cliff is always kind of given credit. And that poor soul who came up with it is like, ah, that was mine. Uh, I think the size matters was, was actually uh, not a Cliff one. I, I won't reveal who it was in case he's embarrassed by it, but the international diversification one was actually, that was an Auntie Illman uh, suggestion that, that we went with. And how do you think, this is kind of an overall question with a lot of things, because as value investors, we sort of dealt with this as well. How do you think about when we have something that makes a lot of sense, something that works over the long term, and then it goes through one of these really long periods where it doesn't. You know, we've seen this with international diversification. We've seen it with value. How do you think about like analyzing one of those situations and saying, all right, is something different and this thing doesn't work anymore? Or is this just another one of those periods that we're, you know, we are going to expect in the middle here where things don't work? We're never going to know an answer. And when I say we, I, I mean, globally, we are never going to know if this time is different. Uh, to some extent, this time is kind of always different, but is it going to be so different that history becomes irrelevant? So a couple things you can do. One is, you know, if the past decade kind of went against what you think it should have done, well, then maybe look a little bit longer and say, okay, with longer context, was the past decade an aberration or, or was it actually kind of more consistent than you would have expected uh, just, just based on the past. So take international diversification as an example. 
Yeah, since 1990, it seems like a pretty atrocious idea. I, I think <laughs> the U.S. outperformed per year EFA by like 4.6%, something crazy like that. Uh, but if you, if you go back beyond 1990, from 1970 to present, that, that edge really goes down. It's actually less than, than 1%. So there's still an edge, but, but it's a lot more uh, modest than I think a lot of people uh, think when, when they think about sort of like the, I don't know, the inherent you know, superiority of, of U.S. markets. The second thing you can do is, is try to decompose uh, the past. You know, what was the driver of that outperformance? And so what we did in this paper was we said, okay, well, there's kind of two ways for an equity market to outperform or, or to win. Uh, the first is based on fundamentals. So was that market able to outgrow? You know, were, were earnings, uh, did they compound? Did they grow faster than other markets? The second, so one is you win on fundamentals. The second is you just get more expensive. You just win on prices. Are people willing, has the market willing to pay more per dollar of earnings from one country versus another? And I think this is an important exercise to do because, yeah, you know, if a country is sort of inherently fundamentally stronger, uh, yeah, maybe that maybe that'll persist. But if a country won, if it outperformed just because it got richer, just because people were willing to pay more for it, that's probably not a great case or or premise for investing in it going forward. Okay, so for the U.S. versus IFA, we can do this since since. 1990 to present, so the period in which the U.S. really trounced other developed markets, take that 4.6% return I mentioned, split it into fundamentals versus just valuations versus just prices. What do we find? Prices, valuations, explains the vast majority of it. In our, so we've got you know regression models and we, and we do it all kind of statistically. We find something like 3.6% can be explained just by U.S. markets getting richer. You're not really as much from fundamentals, just 1.2%. And for the T-stat nerds out there, it's a statistically insignificant number. You know, I'm not saying it is not an economically meaningful one, but statistically, there's a lot of noise around it. And so that's another way of just sort of, I don't know, maybe calibrating uh, one's enthusiasm for uh, and U.S. investors' enthusiasm for having a massive home bias going forward. Uh, the IFA just tripled in relative expensiveness to U.S. over that period. And that's something worth thinking about for the next 10 years. Do you think any of it could have to do with like technology and intangible assets? Could it be that the U.S. hasn't gotten as much richer when you account for those? Or, or is that am I off base on that? No, I think that's a great point. Uh, take uh, sector composition. I think one of the reasons that the U.S. maybe just sort of this is now kind of in the in the landscape of speculation. Uh, might it make sense for the U.S. just naturally or in equilibrium be a more expensive market than others? Well, yeah, maybe. M maybe the U.S. has a greater sector composition uh, of expensive sectors of kind of higher uh, valuation sectors like like technology. If you kind of look at the the data, you find that's part of the story, but not most of the story and definitely not all of the story. Uh, but I think you're right. I, I think that does explain some of it. And how about the idea in terms of international diversification? A lot of people have this idea that, you know, we've got so many multinational companies in the United States mm -hmm. that you're really getting international exposure just by owning them and you don't have to invest internationally. What do you think about that? I, I'm, I'm not like a super extreme kind of 
international diversification zealot. So I will, I will hear out that argument a bit. Uh, I think you're right. If you're a U.S. investor and you have a U.S. bias, that's not that's not too crazy uh, versus the global kind of truly passive market cap um, index, right? The, the U.S. accounts for a bit more than 60% of global market cap. Uh, so even, you know, a truly passive investor uh, will have a U.S. bias. Um, and, and you're right. U.S. multinational companies do derive a good chunk of the revenues from abroad. I think something like 30% of S&P 500 companies or sorry, of S&P 500 companies, I think like 30% of their revenues come from offshore. Uh, but I'd say that's, that, that's, that's not enough. Uh, I think when it comes to the case for diversification for, uh, for equity markets, the case for international diversification, you have to think kind of longer term. And this was a chart that we did in the paper. I, I, you guys are probably familiar with this uh, expression, um, when the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the idea is, yeah, you know, diversification, it's not that great because when one country uh, has a short, kind of sharp drawdown, it's, it's not isolated that one country. It's probably going to be a multi-country or maybe even global phenomenon. You know, when one market crashes, there's, there's spillover uh, effects. <clears throat> um, I think... The problem <laughs> with, with that kind of notion of one, one country, you know, if the U.S. sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, um, is for most investor, investors with multi-year investment horizons, let's say you have a 10-year investment horizon, it doesn't really matter to you about a, a short, sharp crash, right? right? What, what really matters to a long-horizon investor is a protracted a uh, period of technical word of sucking. You know, what if there is a multi-year drawdown or a multi-year recession? That's really the risk that you're hoping for diversification to kind of save you from or, or protect you against, as opposed to the kind of the short, sharp crash. Um, we were talking earlier about kids. Um, September's coming up, kids go back to school. Almost always, one of my kids comes home with a cold and Everyone in the house goes down. It, it, the cold <laughs> spreads to everyone. My kids recover a whole lot faster than I do. And I think that's the case for international diversification, right? Yeah, sure, maybe in a crash, all markets go down, but some are gonna recover a whole lot more than the, the market that you might be in. And so that's really the case for international diversification. It tends to hold up really well, not so much in that initial drawdown, but speeds up the recovery uh, of, of your portfolio. It's interesting because we've seen a lot of those short, sharp crash type bear markets recently. But, you know, we may and obviously no one knows, but, you know, that's not necessarily what every bear market in history has been. And, you know, we may be in a more protracted one now. And that's going to shock a lot of people, I think, because, you know, we're used to 2020 type thing. I mean, that might have been an extreme, but we're used to big decline. We come back, you know, if, if something dragged on for years, it would be a lot of investors, you know, today wouldn't have seen something like that. Yeah, I think I think I think you're exactly right, and I do think it is um, maybe an underappreciated aspect when it comes to risk management. Is the the speed of the risk, the speed of the drawdown, actually matters? You know, so often uh, when it comes to thinking about risk mitigating strategies or diversification or hedging, people think about okay, what's my kind of most, my, my worst tolerable loss, kind of the, the depth of a drawdown. 
I, I think the duration of the drawdown is something that people need to consider as, as well. It, it's the slow burns that are going to be the ones that are more likely to impair wealth creation over, over the long term. To sh shifting to emerging markets, you, you wrote, a, wrote a great paper called Reemerging Equities with Michelle Agassi. Um, and, you know, we've talked about international stocks and how they're cheap. But you all, you've also looked at it sort of as we break them into the categories. We've got the U.S., we've got developed markets, we've got emerging markets. And can you just talk a little bit about what you see when you look at emerging market valuations today? Yeah, and I, I, I think you're, that, that order is kind of right. If you look at, <clears throat> just for simplicity, let, let's take the Schiller uh, PE or Schiller CAPE, as it's sometimes called. Um, so price over earnings, the U.S. these days is about a 30 times earnings. Uh, international ex-U.S. developed markets are about 18 and then emerging is the cheapest at around 14 times earning. And, um, and so we wrote this paper to figure out, well, okay, it appears like emerging markets are relatively cheap. Uh, are they way cheaper than they normally are? Uh, if so, do we think that there's an opportunity for investors or does it seem like they're cheap for uh, a reason? You know, is, is this actually an opportunity or is this something that maybe people just sort of uh, keep on the, uh, on the sidelines? And, and how do you think about that? So when you, when you look at emerging markets right now, you talked earlier about your framework with fundamentals um, and you talked about internationally, fundamentals don't really justify what's going on versus the US. When you look at emerging markets, is it the same thing? Yeah, so with, with emerging markets, you know, I, I, I re I've caught so much heat for having this sort of constructive view on, on emerging markets because people say like, yeah, Dan, what about country X? What about country Y? Did you hear about this presidential candidate? Uh, I, I, will, I will caveat right now, uh, like you said, uh, Jack, that this is a valuation base. So this is sort of a five to 10 year uh, view. Uh, when, when, it comes to, <laughs> when it comes to market forecasts, there's, there's no perfect. It, it, it's, uh, to paraphrase Churchill's, um, a democracy is the worst form of government, uh, except for all the others. Uh, Valuation-based forecasts are kind of a really bad way of forecasting, except for all of the other ways. You know, when you look at all the different ways of trying to come up with, okay, what do we think uh, returns are going to be over the next five to 10 years? Valuations are kind of hard to beat, even though they're not perfect. And so that's really where we're, we're taking the view. We're, we're saying, okay, from a valuation standpoint, what do we think about these markets? Um, and to, to be constructive on them, I don't really have to take too much of a heroic stance uh, for the following reason. Uh, most investors are either implicitly or explicitly already underweight or emerging markets. And so even if you just have sort of an average case for them, um, you know, you would think that investors should probably just re-up, get back to a more neutral uh, position as opposed to necessarily overweighting them. Um, I, I say investors are either explicitly or implicitly underweight. Uh, explicitly is, you know, you just have a view and, and you underweight them. Implicitly, uh, you guys are probably familiar with the the e-vestment database. So this is a, a database of institutional managers. And one of the neat things with the database, it's got like 28,000 funds. You can sum up, you can add up all of the underlying positions that managers have. And so we did that and we added them all up and we compared them. Okay, let's add up all of the positions in emerging markets and compare it to the global market cap. And we found there's about a 25% underweight, even with you know delegated uh, investment managers. So investors are kind of getting sort of this additional implicit underweight. And so coming back to the piece, 
we wanted to figure out, is that justifiable today? And we found, you know, based, looking at the opportunity set based on valuations, we think over the next five to 10 years, investors should, should revisit the, the underweight that they, probably, that they probably have. How do you think, this is something I wonder a lot, how, as quants, how should we think about, you mentioned those political risks before, how should we think about that? I mean, that's not going to be in our models. I mean, obviously, we, yeah. one way is probably we diversify across the countries, but there are the situations like Russia where the market just goes away. And, you know, Russia on like a quantitative basis probably looked pretty cheap before it went away. So I'm wondering, yeah. like, as a quant, how do you think about that? How we should think about like those political risks that sit out there in emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the first uh, cure is way too strong a word. Some, some doctor is probably going to be like, Dan, you, you, <laughs> this is not a cure. But I think the first kind of thing you do, not necessarily a cure, but is, is diversification, right? Um, in some sense, all of these kind of idiosyncratic uh, risks, these event risks in emerging markets, um, if anything, uh, highlight the importance of, of diversifying across them. Um, one other thing I'll mention is, is for context, uh, emerging markets of global market, like cap weight, is, is something that's hovering around 10% of the, of the market cap, of global market cap weighted portfolio. Um, China. China, I think, is the elephant in the room for a lot of emerging market investors or people contemplating an emerging allocation. And they often say, like, ah, I'm, I just can't get comfortable with the risks of China. What do I do? Um, okay. Does China matter? Yes. It, it's the biggest country by market cap weight in the EM index. It's something like 32%. Uh, um, twice as big as the next largest ones, India and Taiwan are each about 4, 15%. Um, but uh, if emerging is only 10% of the global market cap, that means China is only about 3% of uh, a glo truly globally diversified investor's portfolio, assuming there are 100% in equities, you know, of a 60-40 portfolio, then, you know, 60 times the 3%, you, you get something under 2%. So uh, context, I think, matters. Um, but, but, but returning to, to China, um, some of the feedback we, we got on this paper, on this re-emerging equities paper, was how much of the result, how, how much of the kind of current case for um, diversifying into emerging markets is driven by, by China. Um, what we did after writing the paper, and I, I kind of wish we had included it in the paper, but this is why feedback is so important. Um, we reran all of the analysis ex-China, and we found the story was pretty much unchanged. Uh, from a valuation perspective, it's really a EM story as opposed to a China story. Um, and also, the, another thing we looked at was risk. Um, and there's a bunch of ways, you know, quants, I, I, I think, like, but are often um, teased for calculating volatility, but it's, it's one that's worth looking at. It's at least correlated to a bunch of other forms of risk. Uh, we find that the uh, volatility of emerging markets have come in line with developed markets um, with or without China. Uh, the correlations between emerging and developed have also come down, again, with or without China. And so we, we think that, yeah, there's idiosyncratic risk in underlying countries, um, but the diversified basket still looks like a, uh, a compelling idea. I'm just curious as to the scale, like how cheap are emerging markets relative to history, you know, relative to developed right now? I mean, is this like a 99th percentile type thing or, or is it not that extreme? Yeah, this is one. So what we did in the paper, 
Um, one of the challenges with emerging market data, as you guys know, is you just don't have as much of it. We're kind of spoiled in the US with being able to have a 100-year data set. And of course, there's all sorts of debates in terms of, yeah, yeah but Dan, is data from the 30s still relevant today? But you know, with emerging markets, you just don't have that long of a history. But we decided to take a look at the history we do have. So uh, one of the exhibits in this paper, we said, okay, what's the um, expected return of emerging markets uh, based again on valuation. So kind of a, what's the five to 10 year expected return? Uh, and how does that compare to developed markets? And what we did was we, we, we called this, I think the, uh, this is quotes, uh, the emerging premium. So kind of emerging versus developed. And we kind of track that through time. And what we find is uh, when we wrote the piece earlier this, uh, <clears throat> earlier this year, that that premium, that emerging premium, that the valuation gap, the difference, uh, was about as high as we've ever seen. Uh, you'd have to go back to the early 2000s, I think maybe 2000 or 2001, to, to find it as wide as, as it is today. And so uh, to answer your question, on a relative basis, uh, emerging seems as cheap as we've seen in, in over two decades. Just thinking about that multiple expansion, going back to that for a second, and this is kind of going off script a little bit, but maybe... Um, you know, in thinking about that, maybe there's like a series or a whole set of things that could have influenced this over the last 40 years. I mean, the starting valuations in the late 70s, the long-term decline in interest rates. I was thinking like maybe U.S. companies have done a better job at reinvesting rather than paying dividends. Um, I, I just kind of was jotting down some stuff that I thought could, you know, in totality, maybe the the uh, the increase in buybacks in the U.S. of the Federal Reserve being more involved in the markets maybe than other markets, and then and then also just the general ownership of stocks among individual investors. I mean, and I'm not saying that that should support those valuations, but I'm just thinking of structurally like the reasons why those valuations or the multiples would have expanded much more than emerging market stocks. I don't know if that any of that makes sense or if you guys have thought about that at all, but I was kind of thinking about the reasons why. It's a it's a, it's a it's a great point, um, and um, I, I guess kind of two things come to mind. One, yeah, Justin, you're, you're right. Um, earnings growth has been far superior in, in the U.S. over the past decade than than in emerging. Um, one of the neat things, though, in terms of setting expectations for the for the next ten years, is we're not assuming any mean reversion in, in valuations. We're kind of assuming that things stay the same, that the expensive country stays expensive and the cheap country stays cheap. Uh, in, in kind of quant speak, you've got the concepts of uh, value and, and the concept of carry, right? So value is uh, mean reversion and carry is kind of what you earn if, if prices don't change. You can think of it as like a dividend yield or a, or a bond coupon. Uh, the case that we're making for emerging is a carry case. It's just that it's cheaper. We, we don't need revert, uh, evaluations to kind of mean revert for it to, uh, to pay off. In fact, for U.S. to continue to outperform uh, emerging over the next decade, we would actually have to see either earnings growth continue to surprise uh, any kind of analyst consensus or for the U.S. to become even richer uh, versus uh, emerging markets. Um, if the relative valuation levels stay the same. The edge should be to uh, emerging based on carry. And if they do come in, and I think a lot of investors do believe that over time, 
uh, uh, mean reversion is a feature of, of um, valuations of, of markets, uh, then you would expect the realized premium to, to be even greater than what we're predicting in this paper. So I went 50-50 in like 2015 with my kids' 529s, U.S. and international. I'm still waiting for the mean reversion. <laughs> That's all right. I'm a believer. I think it's coming. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, but I'll take it. Yeah, one of one of um, th- this is something that that probably makes a lot more sense to the quant side of the community than the more discretionary or, or fundamental or concentrated side. Um, <clears throat> emerging versus developed is in some sense, and this is going to sound weird, is kind of a concentrated bet, right? You're kind of thinking about one thing versus another. Um, We do think that just in the land of of, of value, uh, that there is a more uh, kind of higher conviction and more diversified bet out there too. Uh, we, We think it exists in emerging, but it actually seems to be a more pervasive thing. And that is just in general, cheap stuff seems priced to outperform expensive stuff uh, by more than we've seen in in decades. Uh, this is something called the the, the value spread. Um, and this is another kind of high conviction, uh, I would say kind of higher conviction because it's a more diversified um, um, uh, call um, than sort of just emerging uh, versus um, versus developed. Well, and I think to build off of that in your re-emerging equities paper, you sort of, I think, made the argument that, you know, the, the opportunity in emerging might be a little bit more active emerging market value um, rather than, you know, wide swath of emerging. So can you sort of just talk to that a little bit? Yeah. And I guess it's probably clear. Uh, this is like the bias alert. Uh, I work for an active manager. So of course I'm going to say active management is a good idea, but let me, let me explain why we think it's sort of an especially uh, good idea today. Uh, and then this is the notion as a sort of opportunity for uh, value uh, stock selection or, or value kind of stock picking. Uh, the intuition for this is um, let, let's pick a market. Let, let's say we're going to form our own uh, uh, strategy right now. And, um, and we line up every security, every company in this market according to cheapness. And so we've got them all in the line. And now we're going to grab the half of the stocks that are the cheap ones and then the half of stocks that are the expensive ones. And we're going to calculate, okay, what's the valuation of the cheap guys and what's the valuation of the expensive guys? Now, I'm going to start with something really dumb, but then it's going to get interesting. Uh, the cheap stuff is always cheaper than the expensive stuff, right? So that's kind of the dumb part. But the interesting part is the distance between the two. How cheap is the cheap stuff compared to the expensive stuff? That changes through time. Uh, There are times, like most of the last decade, from 2010 to 2018, uh, that distance was pretty tight. They were pretty close. The cheap stuff wasn't a whole lot cheaper than the expensive stocks. Um, Where are they today? I'd, I'd, I'd need this on widescreen. They're, they're as far as we have seen in a very long time, and in some places, like emerging, farther than we've ever seen in history. If you think of this as sort of like a rubber band, you know, it, it's, it's almost as stretched as we, <laughs> as we used to think possible, and that's where we are today. We, we call this the value spread. How far apart is the uh, valuation, the cheapness of uh, cheap stuff versus expensive? And, you know, it, it's just like with a rubber band, you know, when you stretch it just a little bit, it doesn't really have much pressure or, or kind of like force pulling it back. But when it's really 
uh, pulled out, that makes you kind of wonder, what, what's going on here? Is this, is this a huge opportunity? Uh, we think that the case uh, today in emerging, and it's, it's broader than that, but with emerging especially, this value spread, this, this kind of rubber band is so stretched, we, we think it's a particularly uh, compelling time to consider uh, having a value orientation, even kind of within a, a, a given market. Would you be able to talk at a high level about some of the inputs that go into constructing that type of strategy? Like on the value side, what are you looking at? Yeah. On the growth or you know, expensive side, I guess, what are you looking at? How are you selecting those securities? And then what does the portfolio sort of composition look like on the long short? And then mm -hmm. you know, maybe even touch on like rebalancing sort of strategy or frequency and how that works. Great. Okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll keep it uh, high level so that um, even though I'm at home, I think someone from compliance might actually drive over here and <laughs> jump in front of the screen. So at a very high level, it just just like how uh, you wouldn't describe someone using just one adjective, uh, we don't want to define uh, the value of a company using just one metric. Uh, so at the highest, broadest level, um, uh, actually, if, if you've seen Cliff, uh, Cliff Asnes, our CIO, He's got, he doesn't like the word blog. It's essentially a blog on our website called Cliff's <laughs> Perspectives. And he's, he's gotten pretty lazy uh, with it this year where he'll just post a chart. And the chart is, is this rubber band concept I'm talking about. So I'll, I'll, I'll describe how that chart is built. Uh, we take five different uh, definitions or metrics or, or measures of value. So there's the classic price to book, but we also do... Um, earnings to price, uh, forecasted earnings to price. Uh, we use a, a cash flows measure. We use a sales measure just to get kind of a composite view of, of how cheap is this thing. And th that way, you know, we're, we're not kind of going to, I don't know, fall prey to any issue with like, oh, what about intangibles? Oh, what about this? What about that? We, we take all five and we just blend them together. So this is how we're going to define whether or not a company is a uh, cheap stock or an expensive stock. Then what we want to do is we want to be careful about how we uh, build the portfolio, right? If, if we don't pay attention to what industry a company is in, uh, and let's say technology is more expensive than, um, than healthcare, if you just kind of rank all stocks according to their cheaper expensiveness, there's a chance you're going to end up with all of the technology stuff on the expensive side and all of the healthcare stuff on the cheap side, you're going to end up with a huge industry bet as opposed to a, a value bet. And so we don't want to contaminate those two things. So what we do is we say, okay, on a sector neutral basis, so kind of go into every single industry and within each industry, find who's the expensive guy, who's the, uh, who's the cheap guy. Um, for international, we, we, we do it country uh, neutral as well. We really want to focus just on the valuation differences as opposed to that other stuff, you know, industry membership, uh, country, all, all of that. Um, we rank them according to the, the signal, right? The, the cheaper stuff we're going to like more than the semi-cheap stuff. Um, and, and that's how we're going to build uh, the, the portfolio. Um, uh, practically speaking, you know, AQR does both long, short, you know, market neutral type hedge funds. We also have long only strategies. So for our long, short uh, implementations, we'll go long the cheap stuff, uh, short the expensive stuff. Uh, for the long only, you know, overweight and underweight, but same ideas, the same kind of underlying uh, theory. The l last thing I'll say on this um, is it's not 
just value that we look at. Nobody should look at only one thing, in our opinion. Uh, you want to make sure that the cheap stock that you're interested in isn't cheap for a reason. So you want to take into account other things, uh, quality, uh, uh, defensiveness, uh, you know, low risk, uh, the momentum, uh, just to make sure that, yeah, maybe your thesis is value is particularly attractive today, but you don't want that to come at the expense of being short other factors that, that you believe in. You did a really good job keeping that high level, but it would have been a great YouTube moment if a compliance team stormed in <laughs> right in the middle of the interview. We could have made it into a YouTube short. We could have gotten views up. Well, it sounds like, too, I mean, one of the things that you're focused on, and this is something that we have thought and tried to, you know, when we're thinking about our investment strategies that we build is how do you manage and control a tracking error? Because, you know, the more tracking error you have, the more deviation from the benchmark, probably for the most part, you know, the less investors that are likely to stay with you, especially during those three or five year periods when a strategy goes through, you know, relative underperformance. So, you know, how do you guys think about that? And it might be different between the long short and the long only. I mean, those are going to have different risk characteristics. But, you know, just generally when you're thinking about your EM strategies, how are you thinking about tracking here? This, I mean, this is this is so tricky. Uh, tra tracking error. I, classically, if, if you look at, you know, the academic literature, uh, tracking error is a risk. So in theory, you, you don't want a lot of it. Uh, but uh, you're, you're right. You know, if, if you think your benchmark, maybe you're a 60-40 investor and, and you, uh, like AQR, uh, think that 60-40 is priced to deliver below historical returns for the next five to 10 years, you're going to want to take some tracking error. Like if that's your belief, you're going to want to deviate from that benchmark because you don't think the benchmark is going to deliver. Um, so then the question is, well, how much, how much can you take? Uh, we actually wrote a paper uh, three years ago. We have this series uh, called Alternative Thinking. And three years ago, we wrote a piece called, Was That Intentional? And what it did was it tried to distinguish between intended or, or compensated tracking error and unintended or uncompensated sources of tracking error. Uh, so intended tracking error, active management. So I, I come to you guys and I say, hey, uh, guys, I, I really like your investment philosophy. Uh, can, you, can you design a strategy to beat a benchmark? You say, sure, Dan, you know, I'm going to give you uh, the strategy. It's going to have a 3% tracking error. I say, great, that is intended tracking error. I'm on board. But then there's kind of unintended or uncompensated tracking error. Um, let's say I, I have a bunch of your strategies in my portfolio and I just randomly decide that I'm going to rebalance my portfolio, get it back to its strategic asset allocation, uh, once every nine months, um, that rebalancing frequency, I'm, I'm going to deviate from my strategic asset allocation. I'm going to deviate from my benchmark, uh, until that kind of nine month period. Then I kind of snap back to it. Those deviations, that's not because I have an alpha view or anything. The tracking error that comes from my rebalancing decision, that's sort of an unintended source of tracking error. So I, I guess the first thing is tracking error, you're really looking to maximize the intended and minimize the unintended. Now, the second question is, okay, well, how much is right? How much of the intent, you know, the right answer for unintended is zero. What's the right answer for intended? Um, in that paper, uh, we had a, an appendix um, that tries to provide a model for folks to figure out, to estimate, um, to quantify how much tracking error should I have in my 
that I give to a fund manager or to my own overall portfolio. And it's really a factor of how much are you comfortable losing over a given horizon and how much faith do you have in your manager? Those are sort of the two inputs. You know, if, if, if you're willing to lose 1% uh, versus your benchmark once every three years and you think your manager has a information ratio or kind of risk adjusted return of, of their alpha of a certain level, there's kind of an optimal uh, amount of tracking error you should be taking. And it was, it was kind of a neat thing for us to do because I hadn't really seen that, uh, that, that math or that kind of study um, done before. Um, so for folks interested in checking out, you know, at least a kind of a quantitative model of, of what's the right amount of tracking error, uh, definitely check it out. The, the appendix, the paper is called, Was That Intentional? Um, and again, free, <laughs> freely available on, online. Yeah, great. Thank you. That's 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 very interesting. Um, hopefully, people check that out. You know, I wanted to just two more questions before we let you go. And you've been great with your time, and this is awesome. Um, I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on you know coming off of last year, U.S. bear market, bear market in a lot of different markets, but you know you kind of had this period of value outperforming, and I think a lot of value and maybe even international and emerging market value investors sort of thought the setup was good for continued outperformance, but here we are, you know, S&P up, whatever it is. I mean, there's been some weakness recently. And it's not necessarily like I'm asking for a short-term market timing call at all here. It's just, I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts on, you just given what's going on in the market this year. And also like, from what I've seen, and I don't know if this is, can be proven out in all the evidence and, and historical data, but, you know, value tends to be very explosive. You get these like explosive moves in value, you know, coming off of the bottoms of the bear markets, and you know, a lot, maybe a lot of the value premium. I don't know if it's that way with with EM. I'm guessing it's it's somewhat similar. But you get these spurts, and then you get this like, you know, okay, then we're done. But you know, obviously, from 2000 to 2007, that was that that didn't happen. I mean, emerging value did very well during that period, and so did emerging markets. So I'm just wondering, you know, those are two different, I guess, but related comments that I'd like to hear your thoughts on. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two different and hopefully related answers. <laughs> Maybe I'll start first with, uh, with, with macro, and then I'll, then I'll turn to, to, to value. Um, a, a piece that uh, I can't take any credit for, someone else in the firm um, uh, worked on, uh, looked at macro uncertainty. And um, it's okay. So what, what is macro uncertainty or what is macro volatility? The, the, the way we think about it is, you know, there's, um, the survey of professional forecasters, they say, okay, what, what do we think inflation is going to be a year out? Or what do we think uh, GDP is going to be a year out? So you've got these predictions. And so if markets are predictive mechanisms, they should be kind of pricing in these guesses, but a year later, we actually get the data. We actually get the result. Here's what happened. So maybe inflation was predicted to be, uh, let's, let's take our time machine, go back one year. People were thinking inflation was going to be down to three and a half percent. It's still higher than that, right? So uh, the uncertainty was the difference between what happened and what you predicted. So what you can do is you can build a, a time series of this and figure out, okay, what were the times when um, the forecasts were uh, off by a lot versus off by a little? Times where it's off by a lot, we'll, we'll call those macro uncertain moments. This is times where we just we were we have no idea what actually is going to transpire. Um, 2022 uh, was one of these 
macro uncertain or macro tumultuous periods where the data that came in was just the forecasters were were wrong um, by more than they were uh, by by more than they were on, on kind of on average historically. Um, we're still there today. I, I think um, you know I, I think a lot of people uh, assume that you can get out of a macro uncertain environment quickly. Uh, that that's just not the case empirically, and, and and we think there's kind of good reason for it. You know, markets, yeah, calm tends to beget calm, but you know, turmoil doesn't tend to beget calm. That tends to be kind of a slower, stickier process. Um, I'm I'm surprised uh, markets have rallied as much as they have this year, but I'd say that you know macro conditions haven't really changed all that much uh, compared to the end of last year. So it, it's it's a little bit of a a, a surprise there. Um, okay, but uh, getting to the the, the value uh, part of your question, value, and I think most, if not all, contrarian strategies are best suited for long-term investors, or at least a long-term investor mentality. They are um, bouncy, volatile, uh, jumpy, episodic types of returns. There, there is no uh, <laughs> well-known factor that, 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 that's smooth. Um, timing value is, is a difficult thing and, and we think should only be done at uh, extremes. Um, now, a question that has come up a bunch is, okay, well, value had an incredible 2022. Um, it's doing, it's, at least our versions of it are doing fine this year, but a lot of folks, I think, are wondering, um, you know, is, is the car out of gas at this point? Has value had its run and now it's just back to kind of normal times? Um, we can um, quantify that. We, we can take a look at, okay, well, what do that current spreads, remember that kind of that, that rubber band analogy, what does it imply? Um, is is left for for value investors. We're still near uh, a little bit below, but pretty near tech bubble peaks. We we think there's plenty of gas left in the the tank here. Um, and you know I can't say the fun has just begun because investing is not fun, particularly when you have a volatile strategy. Um, but we we think we're still early innings, and you know it would probably be a rocky road, but 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 one that we have high conviction in, um, kind of ending up strongly positive over the next few years. I would say if the, if the fun has just begun, that means that the, the good performance is probably over. The pain needs to be extreme. That's when you get the, the good returns. I, I think that is, you know, when, when it comes to factors, there's always this kind of debate. Uh, why? You know, why does it, why does it work? Why doesn't it go away? You've got podcasts like yours where people talk about it. You know, why aren't these things being arbitraged away? Why should they persist? Um, and one school of thought um, is, well, because these things are hard. They're painful. There's tracking error around them. They're, they're not for everybody. They're hard to stick with. And, and the investors who can stay the course are the ones who ultimately are, are compensated. So I think you're onto something there. We like to ask all of our guests a standard closing question, which is that is based on your experience in the markets. If you could teach the average investor one lesson, what would that be? You know, my default answer for this is always something tracking error related, but we've already touched on tracking error. So I'm going to, I'm going to do something controversial. Uh, I'm going to disagree with Buffett. This is, I, I should admit too, I, this is the first time I've ever said this before. So you guys let me know if, if it lands or if it just seems like uh, career suicide. Uh, Buffett has that line, uh, diversification 
is uh, what is it? Insurance against ignorance or protection against ignorance? Um, I think he's wrong. I think education, research, and study, that's protection against ignorance. Uh, diversification is protection against bad luck. And everyone has bad luck at some point in their career. Uh, and that's really the reason that diversification um, matters. And I think one of the reasons that people are kind of uncomfortable with it because it almost means implicitly admitting that you could be wrong. <laughs> and I think that's one of the reasons it's so hard for so many people uh, who don't get deep into the data to, to recognize, yeah, you know, a diversified portfolio is a messy one, but it's a pretty good idea uh, if you're if you're looking ahead. Thank you, Dan. This has been awesome. Really appreciate your enthusiasm, your knowledge, your wisdom, sharing that you're uh, going against the grain with with Buffett there, which I think I agree with you on that. So for for what it's worth. And uh, by the way, if you ever get the uh, podcast bug again and want to come back on and and join us or even be a, a, a guest co-host, you're more than welcome. So thank I you very much. I really appreciate that, guys. Yeah, I. I uh, a huge fan of your show. So that, that really does mean a lot to me. Thank you. Thank you. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.